turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34. So we make our way through the book of Genesis, considering the life of Jacob. Come to chapter 34, and I'd like to read the entire chapter for us. And so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible word. Genesis chapter 32, or sorry, 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the, Hit, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Give me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. So his sons were, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to, to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we, uh, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. These words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure 
and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the, in the houses, they captured and plundered. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Where the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude and grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved of the Lord, last week we saw at the end of chapter 33 that Jacob and his family safely arrived into the land of Canaan. He was able to purchase property from the men of the city of Shechem, and, and everything seemed to be going fine. There we saw the Lord making good on his promise to Jacob that he would be with him wherever he went and would bring him back to the land where the Lord promised back in chapter 28 he will not leave him until all that he has done for, until he would do all that he had promised to him. Well, so far, so good. But now we see in chapter 34, tragedy strike. We see that when Jacob arrives at the land of Canaan, the land that is to be the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that is to be a type and shadow of heaven itself, we are quickly uh, reminded of the fact that this is not heaven. But rather, Jacob is residing in a land that is marred and corrupted with sin. It is part of the fall uh, that we are reminded of here today, where this world is filled with sinful people, including Jacob and his family. And so as we consider this tragedy that strikes the covenant community, we're reminded of the fact that God is sovereign, and he takes even the sinful things we do to accomplish his perfectly good will. As I said, everything seemed to be going so well by the end of chapter 33, but upon further reflection, as we, as we look at it a bit closer, there were a few things uh, that we should notice. For example, Jacob arrived at the land of Canaan as God had promised him, but he did not arrive uh, at Bethel where he promised he would go upon returning the land of Canaan. Remember, when he had left, back in chapter 38, fleeing his brother Esau, the Lord appeared to him there at Bethel. And Jacob made a vow that if God would be with him, if he would keep him safe and return him to the land, that he would come back to Bethel and, and set up, a, 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 erect an altar and give 10% of all that he had unto the Lord. We see Jacob made it to the land of Canaan but did not go to where he said he would go and, and ultimately return to pay his vow. And so it is uh, Jacob's 
uh, uh, failure to do what he said he would do, which ultimately in chapter 35, the Lord tells Jacob to go to Bethel to make good on his promise. It's because Jacob did not do that that ultimately this uh, tragic uh, tra- tragedy or this tragedy, this chain of events takes place. Well, we learn in uh, in verse 31 of our passage that since they're residing near this Hivite city of Shechem, this gives opportunity for Jacob's daughter, Dinah, to go out and uh, to uh, go out to mingle with the women of the land. Now, Dinah, who is the only named daughter of Jacob, uh, as we saw back in chapter 30, in all likelihood, isn't the only daughter of Jacob, but is the only one who is named for us in Holy Scripture because she plays such an important role in this passage today. Dinah, who probably at this time is about, uh, sorry, uh, at this time, who's only about 14 years old, has gone out to mingle with the women of the land. Now this, for a young woman to go out by herself, unaccompanied, suggests carelessness on her part, but also, of course, negligence on the part of her father, especially with what we know about Canaanite women. Everything we've been told up until this point in the book of Genesis is that Canaanite women are not very good role models. Remember, Abraham asked his servant to swear, do not take a Canaanite woman uh, for my uh, for my son's wife. And, and Esau, who took the Canaanite women to be their wives, we read that it made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And so knowing what we know about Canaanite women, knowing uh, what we know about uh, Dinah, who's, who's young at this point and impressionable, it is certainly not a good idea, certainly most unwise for her to go out and mingle with the women of the land. Of course, it's not very long before tragedy strikes as the most powerful prince of this city finds Dinah, takes her, and defiles her. You see Shechem, this powerful man of the city, is acting like the the, uh, kings of old back in chapter 6 of Genesis, the so-called sons of God. As they see the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. And so here Shechem takes upon himself uh, uh, this man of power, abuses his power, and takes Dinah, Jacob's daughter, and rapes her. But it is after this initial violent act of passion that Shechem, this powerful prince, finds himself completely taken with Dinah. And he begins to attempt to woo her as he speaks tenderly to her. And he goes to his father and he demands that this young woman be taken as his wife. Meanwhile, back at camp where Jacob is residing, we see Jacob in verse 5 receive the news that no father would ever want to hear concerning his daughter. And yet his reaction is conspicuously absent. He holds his peace. Jacob is a man that we know is capable of extreme emotions. Remember when he had made it to Padam Aram and he he, uh, saw Rachel uh, coming with her flock and he turns over the, the stone with the well and he cries. Again, when he interacts with, uh, when he has the long, uh, uh, um, meeting with his brother, they cry together. And ultimately, again, as we'll see later when Jacob finds word that his beloved son Joseph has been killed by wild beasts, he's completely emotional. 
So Jacob, we know, is a man that is capable of extreme emotional outbursts, and yet here he holds his peace. So we might wonder, why? Why is it after this terrible news that strikes, why is it that he holds his peace? Well, some have suggested perhaps he was waiting till his sons would come in from the field to consult with them. We're told that they weren't there at the time. They were out in the field watching the flocks. And so perhaps he's waiting for his sons to come to consult with them. But if that's the case, why would he need to consult with his sons who couldn't be much more than 20 years old? Why would this man need to uh, get their opinion? Also, we're not told in Scripture that it was necessarily Jacob who gave them the tragic news and summoned them to come. And further, when they arrive, we read that Jacob takes a back seat in the deliberations. When Hamor and Shechem come, Jacob doesn't say a word. And so perhaps the best explanation for Jacob's lack of emotional response, sadly, is that he probably didn't care all that much for Dinah. Remember, Dinah is the daughter of Leah, whom Jacob does not love. The wife that was foisted upon him, the wife that he never ever wanted and ultimately never really loved. Sadly, it seems that the favoritism he showed to Rachel and to Rachel's son uh, was also uh, uh, shown in that he didn't really care for the sons and daughter of Leah. And sadly, it seems that his best course of action is inaction, really doing nothing even in the face of this tragic event. Well, as we read the reaction of Jacob's sons in verse 7, we might consider this to be more what we would expect. When they get the news that their sister Dinah had been defiled by the prince of the land, we read that they were indignant and very angry. They were furious, and they rushed in from the field as soon as they could. As soon as they got news, and they crashed in on this meeting that between Jacob and Hamor, which seems to have already started in verse 6. You see, the reason why they had this reaction is because what, what Scripture tells us is that this man had done an outrageous thing in Israel. See, this is the opinion of the brothers. This is the opinion of the narrator of Scripture. And ultimately, this is the opinion of the reader of God's Word. The, the, the first readers, the Israelites, and ultimately God's people today, We consider this action of Shechem an outrageous thing, something that should never be done. And yet when they they have this interaction with Hamor, and as we find out, Shechem also is there in this this delegation, it seems to to strike us in verse 8 as being awfully polite. And yet there's two things we need to keep in mind. First, when Jacob's sons speak to Hamor, And to Shechem, even though they seem very polite to them, keep in mind that they're lying through their teeth. And so they're only putting on airs of being polite. They can't can't, uh, uh, show their true emotions in order for their deception to take place. The second thing we need to keep in mind with this uh, interaction between Hamor and Jacob and their sons is that we find out later that Shechem actually kept Dinah for himself in verse 17 and verse 26, we realized that, that they had, he hadn't returned Dinah. And so for Hamor and Shechem to come to Jacob and, and ask for Dinah's hand in marriage, keep in mind that they have the upper hand at this point because they're, in essence, holding Dinah hostage. 
And so it comes now to Hamor, the father of the groom, to begin the initial proposal. He says uh, there in verse 8, uh, he speaks and he says, uh, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. The word, uh, the, the your there is plural. And so he's addressing not only Jacob, but also Jacob's older brothers who are all uh, standing there. And so he gives the initial proposal of marriage, but then he tries to sweeten the deal with a much grander offer. So what he's proposing here is not just a simple marriage between one man and one woman, but in essence, what Hamor is proposing here to Jacob and his community and his family is full integration and ensuing economic prosperity. You see, he gives the offer, we'll give you our daughters. You give us your daughters. We will become one people. We will share things uh, in the land. You will be able to, tr- to dwell, to trade in the land, to get prosperity and, pro- and property. See, Amor is promising Jacob and his sons life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in this land of Canaan. It's interesting, the, the words, the promises that Hamor is giving to Jacob sounds awfully familiar to the promises that the Lord gave to Jacob and to his, his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. It was the Lord who promised to them that they would reside in the land, that ultimately they would possess all of, all of this uh, land of promise. And yet here Hamor is promising the same thing to them and yet through a very different means of achieving that. You see, Hamor may have had ulterior motives, as we see in verse 23. He says, all that they have will become ours. And yet, keep in mind, intermarriage is the easiest, was in the ancient world, the easiest and most practical way to integrate into a new culture and to gain social standing in it. Ultimately, that's what Esau had done. As Esau married women of the land, he was able to uh, ingratiate himself with the inhabitants of the land to gain property and ownership, which is why ultimately we see him as a very rich and powerful man in the previous chapter. This is what Hamor is promising them, the easy way of obtaining land and property in Canaan. And yet this is exactly what God commanded his people not to do. As we see later in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses commands the Israelites that when they enter into the land of Canaan, he says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and taking their daughters for your sons. For they they would turn away your sons from following me to serve after other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. You see, here we see the command of God that uh, as, as with the Israelites, so with the patriarchs, while they were called to live in the land of Canaan, they were never to become part of the land of Canaan. They were never to mix and uh, intermix and intermarry with the cursed line of Canaan, which is ultimately why they would go out of the land to find wives for, uh, for their sons. You see, they were not to lose their special identity as the covenant people of God. And this is exactly what would take place if they were to intermarry with the inhabitants of the land. So that is what God's word teaches. It's another question about whether that was a real concern for Jacob and his sons. 
And yet getting back to this, uh, this interaction between Hamor uh, and, and Shechem, we see perhaps perceiving his father's offer to fall on deaf ears. It is now Shechem, the son who desires Dinah as his bride, who speaks up to sweeten the deal. And his offer is really over the top. We see that in verses 11 and 12. He says, ask, ask any price, anything for the bride price. This would be the money that the, the groom would pay to the father of the bride uh, in return uh, for his daughter. But also he mentions a gift on top of that, uh, which would in all likelihood be a gift that would be given to Dinah herself. Shechem offers to pay both of those things. And he says, name your price. Any price you ask, I will pay it. Well, it's at this point that sensing Shechem's desperation, sensing the fact that he would do anything to have Dinah as his bride, it is now Jacob's sons that take a page from their father's playbook and engage in a bit of deception of their own. We read that they spoke to Hamor and his son Shechem deceptively. And what they do in verse 14 through 17 is they mention the one impediment between marriage. They say there's only one thing that is preventing us from giving our uh, daughter Dinah to you, and that one thing, of course, is circumcision. We cannot give uh, Dinah to you being uncircumcised, that would be, uh, that, that would be a, an outrageous thing. And, and so, what do they do? Well, they mention circumcision as the one requirement that not only Shechem and his father, but all the men of the city need to become circumcised so that they can join together as one people. Now, keep in mind, this is not a missionary call for the Hivites to unite together with the covenant people. That is not the motives of Jacob's sons. You see, sadly, what they do here is they strip the holy covenant sign of circumcision of its significance, and they sacrilegiously misuse the holy sacrament as a ploy in their deception. See, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 that circumcision is a sign and seal of the righteousness that is available by faith. And so for Abraham and all of his descendants to receive the sign of circumcision, that was supposed to be a physical sign of a spiritual reality. And yet, Jacob's sons mention nothing about that. They don't mention the need for faith and repentance in their covenant God. They strip that, the, the sign of its significance and use it as a ploy in order to accomplish their purposes. Now, perhaps they did this out of ignorance. Perhaps they didn't understand truly the significance of circumcision, in which case that would fall again on Jacob, as it was his responsibility to teach them the significance of their circumcision. But whether they did it out of ignorance or, or, or uh, full knowledge, what they do here is wrong. And yet, I can't help but notice, in verse 16, what they say. Look there in verse uh, 16, as they say, what would happen if they are circumcised? They said, then we, uh, then we will dwell with you and become one people. It's amazing what they say here. And it's repeated again as Hamor speaks to the men of his city. We will be one people. Ultimately spoken in bad faith by Jacob's sons and not at all their intention. I can't help but notice that this is exactly 
what our Lord Jesus Christ does in the new covenant. As he comes and he breaks down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. As he takes uh, uh, two different flocks and makes them one flock with one shepherd. As Paul tells us in Galatians 3, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. So a remarkable thing that this, this, tra- this, this, uh, this terrible, sinful act, a deceptive act on Jacob's sons, ultimately is what Christ truly does as he unites Jew and Gentile together in one body in him. Well, getting back to our passage, we see this offer of Jacob's sons uh, being accepted by Hamor and Shechem. We read in verse 18 that, the, that their words pleased them. Literally, it was good in their eyes for this offer. And the young man, uh, uh, Shechem, because of his love that he had for Dinah, did not delay to become circumcised. He immediately went and proceeded to have the procedure done. Blinded by his passions, he walks right into a trap. And having led by example, uh, not delayed in receiving circumcision, we read in verse 19 that Shechem was actually the most honored of all the sons of Hamor, and I think it'd be fair to say that he would have to be in order to convince the entire male population to undergo circumcision. And ultimately, that is the task of Hamor and Shechem in verse 20 through 23. I don't really envy Hamor in this passage. First of all, he has to try to attempt a father to give his daughter to her to a rapist. And now he has to convince the entire male population of the city to undergo circumcision. And yet, that's what he does in verse 20 through 23, as Hamor and Shechem assemble all the men together at the city to sell them this deal. You have to just picture it. Boy, have we got a deal for you. You get to intermarry with these wonderful people that are residing in our land, these these rich people who have all of their possessions. No doubt that was the selling point. Uh, Look again in verse 23. Will not all of their possessions and cattle and all these things be ours as we integrate together and ultimately absorb them into our society? And all this and more can be yours if you undergo one tiny cosmetic procedure. That's all it takes. Maybe a few days of pain, but all these things can be yours. Ultimately, they are successful. No doubt Shechem's influence and uh, and Hamor's persuasive words convinces the entire male population of the city to undergo circumcision, which is what they do in verse 24. And three days later, no doubt waiting for uh, uh, waiting to ensure that everyone has the procedure, but also waiting for the peak of soreness, when the swelling and inflammation would set in, when the men of the city would begin regretting their decision to undergo this cosmetic procedure. We read of the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi. Now, this is Levi's, or sorry, this is Leah's, second and third-born sons, and most importantly, Dinah's full brothers, Simeon and Levi, who were known to be total hotheads. 
as opposed to their older brother Reuben and their younger brother Judah, uh, as we'll see later in the in the story where uh, their, the, the brothers uh, attempt to murder jo- uh, Joseph, we see that it is Reuben and Judah who take a more uh, a, a more subdued approach to it, which would lead Simeon and Levi as the chief instigators in wanting to put Jacob, their brother, their half-brother, to death. When we read of these two brothers, Simeon and Levi, taking their swords and going and wiping out the entire male population of the city when they are most vulnerable, when they felt that they were uh, at peace, they come and they destroy every single male, including the king of the city, Hamor, and his prince son, Shechem. And we read that they are successful in recovering their their sister, Dinah, and returning her home. But unless we assume that this is just some sort of elaborate rescue operation, we read that that's not all. Look there in verse 27. that The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and and plundered the city. They took their flocks and their herds, their their, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they, they captured and plundered. See, they didn't stop at just killing Shechem. They didn't stop at just rescuing their sister Dinah, but they wiped out the entire male population and plundered the entire city. See, when we read in God's word the command uh, that, that there be an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, so often we think of that as being harsh and draconian measures. And yet in reality, those commands, an eye for eye and a tooth for tooth, actually uh, uh, actually puts a limit on our natural tendency to overcompensate when administering justice. You see, if somebody strikes us, we want to punch them back twice as hard. If somebody removes our eye, we want to take out both of their eyes. And ultimately, that's what we see here with Simeon and Levi. We see disproportionate retribution. They go way beyond anything that justice would require. And that's why Jacob, in verse 30, rebukes their son, his sons. He says, you have brought trouble upon me. You have made me a stench to the inhabitants of the land. All the other peoples will hear of what you have done, and it will all come upon me. He rebukes them. Although sadly, it seems that Jacob's motives were selfish as he is fearful of what the other inhabitants of the land might do. They will come upon me. You notice there, the, the first person singular. They'll come upon me. They'll destroy me. And only a seeming after fact will they destroy my family. You see, Jacob's dis- disapproval of their actions will also be expressed later on in his cursing of their anger and ultimately in, in, the, uh, in, in the tribes of Levi and Simeon being excluded from the blessings of having an allotment in the land of Israel. We'll see that at the end of, the, at the end of Genesis in chapter 49. And so here, most clearly, Simeon and Levi's actions are condemned. And yet their terse reply shows that they really showed no, no remorse. And they felt justified in their actions when they say at the very end of our passage, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? What a way to end this passage of Scripture. He can't get away with that. 
he can't treat her that way. They felt justified in their actions. You see, the brother's response here shows our deep-seated desire for vengeance. That's part of human nature. That's something that we, as, as people, desire is that we be vindicated and those that mistreat us or sin against us or our loved ones be punished. And although that desire is marred and distorted by sin, as, as was the case with Simeon and Levi, going way beyond anything that justice required, it is nevertheless a real desire, and it is a just reflection of the image of the Lord who calls himself a God of vengeance. What we read of in Psalm 94, O God of vengeance, shine forth. You see, this desire that we as humans have that that, uh, people who sin against us be punished is a good desire. And that's why later on when the Israelites re-enter the land of Canaan, they are commanded to wipe out the Hivites and the Hittites and the Canaanites and Perizzites and all of the inhabitants of the land. They They are, as executioners of God's wrath, called to punish the evildoers of the land. So at the end of the day, ultimately, Simeon and Levi's actions, while justly condemned by their father, and a gross overreaction, uh, 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 holding a personal grudge, ultimately their actions jump the gun on God's timeline of wrath. See, we saw back in chapter 15 that the sins of the Amorites and all of the inhabitants of the land were not yet complete. The the grapes of wrath were not yet ripe for gleaning. And so they jumped the gun here during this time where they're supposed to live at peace as much as resided within them to live at peace with the inhabitants of the land. And yet later on, those grapes of wrath would be ripe for for the Israelites to come in and act as executioners of God's wrath upon the sinful inhabitants of the land, which serves as a type of the final judgment that Christ will bring at his return. But as I said before, we have more in common with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob than with Moses or David or anyone else living under the Mosaic Covenant. Because they, like, uh, like them, we too live during a time of common grace when God has withheld his final day judgment. And he calls us to live at peace with our neighbor. And he calls us not to seek to avenge ourselves, but rather to leave it to the wrath of God. And so as God's people, we are called to be patient, but not pacifists. We are called to patience, not being pacifists. And that's why Paul can command in Romans chapter 12, beloved, never avenge yourself. Believe it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's the command that we, as God's people living in this present evil age, have for us is that we need to be patient. We need to trust in the fact that God will punish all sins. Not a a single idle word will be left unpunished. 
And if you are an enemy of God's people, that should be terribly sobering. That nothing will escape God's wrath. And yet for God's people, knowing that our sins have been punished at the cross, this should afford us immense comfort. Knowing that Jesus Christ will come again to punish all his and our enemies. And so we are called to patience in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let us uh, uh, live lives of gratitude as we await his return. Amen.